Amen. Good morning, everyone. It's so wonderful to be here together. We're so very thankful for all of our members who are here, as well as our visitors, friends, and family. And uh, just great to be here to worship together on this day. Uh, I saw my friend Cletus Washington come in, and he and I reconnected after a long time in Brookshire's. He works at Brookshire's. When you see him, be sure to say hello. We were in kindergarten at ETCA together, and uh, uh, so we, we, we reconnected, and it was really great, great to do that, and we're so very thankful for those who are visiting, uh, Rose and Nathan and many others, and thankful for all of you who are here uh, this morning. It's a wonderful thing to be together, and happy Easter. Uh, we celebrate this, uh, we celebrate Easter on this day, but I really like the way that uh, I, I'm hearing more often where people are calling it Resurrection Sunday. I really like that because it, it really captures what this day is about. And, and the kids' activities is, is good and fine, certainly, but the focus, as Brother Ray taught about this morning, uh, one of the points he made is, is about Jesus being raised by the power of God from the dead. And because of that, our faith is real. It's valid because he raised from, was raised from the dead. Had he just died on the cross, well, thousands of people died on the cross by the hand of the Romans. The fact is, he was raised from the dead. And that means that everything he taught is true. And we can believe the word of God that it is true. And we can put our faith into it. It's because that Jesus lives that we have hope for salvation and hope for eternal life in heaven. And it's because he lives that we can believe all that he says he is, who he is, and what he's done for us. We can fully put our hope in him. And it's that courageous commitment that he had. And that's what we're looking at this morning, courageous commitment as we start our study in the book of Daniel. We're only going to look at the first six chapters because the first six chapters focus on Daniel in particular as well as his three friends and some different things that happened to them. So children, I hope uh, you find these uh, stories familiar to you because you've been learning them in Bible class. Youth, maybe they'll, uh, they'll hopefully be familiar to you. There's some great uh, lessons in here for youth and for all of us because these were young, these were Hebrew teenage young men who were faced with all of these great things, these great challenges in their faith. And yet today we're going to look at how they showed courageous commitment. So turn with me to chapter 1 of Daniel. Now, as we get further along, we may be able to touch on a little bit the last few chapters, but they, they shift gears and cover some other things, but we'll, we'll refer to them some along the way. But this is happening in Daniel, the book of Daniel is happening around the same time as Confucius and Buddha were alive and the Mayans were flourishing in Mexico. I think that's fascinating. Aesop was writing his fables. Did you know that? And so, so it places Daniel in, in history where we can see, oh, wow, I've heard of those people. I've heard of those Aesop's fables books, and, and, and I read those as a kid. And, and this is happening when that was happening. And that helps us to, to see that in history clearly. I think that's interesting to be able to, 
do that. That what we read in the Bible is not just some story that someone made up or that happened, you know, trillions of years ago or something like that. These are real stories, real people that happened in history. And in fact, this was only 600 years before Jesus was born. Now, uh, None of us in here are that old, and for younger people that seems like a million years, but, but that really historically is not very long before Jesus is born when the events in the book of Daniel are happening. Now, we learn about Daniel, and he's born, uh, he's born in Jerusalem. We're not told anything about his parents except that Daniel was from royalty or nobility. And we'll see more about that in a minute. But look at verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1. We see that the book begins like an action movie where you're just immediately in the action. There's no long story, long background. Immediately King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonian army of Babylonia... Babylon is, is defeating, attacking and defeating Jerusalem. And the temple is destroyed. God's temple and Jerusalem is attacked and, and they're, they're taken uh, captive and everything is destroyed. People are killed. The temple is in ruins. That's the setting we walk into when we open up the book of Daniel. And so the Bible says that King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, he took even the things from the house of God, the temple, and he took them to the house of his God, little g. And so the defeat and the conquer of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple of God's people where God was to dwell with His people, where they would go to worship Him, this is the lowest point they could possibly be at. Because by all observation on the outside, it appeared as though God had been defeated. That they had, Nebuchadnezzar and his great army, had defeated God with his little g-god and his army. And that they had taken stuff from the temple of the God and said, yeah, it's mine now. I'm more powerful. And they took it back to their temple and put it in their house of their little g-god. It looked like God had lost, all had been defeated This was bad news. And then we see that Nebuchadnezzar also commanded one of his chief of his eunuchs, his chief eunuch, to go and take some young people who are the best and brightest and bring them as prisoners of war, as captives, and take them back to Babylon. Look at verses 3 through 4. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility. So we know Daniel's caught up in that, so we know he's of the royal family or of the nobility. Verse 4, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. This is terrible. Now, so we've got to think, why would God let this happen? Why would he let it go that 
far to what seems to be the most extreme point, why would God let that happen to his people, to his temple, and for it to look like to all the other armies of the world that that Nebuchadnezzar had defeated the God of Israel? This was terrible stuff, but we see in verse 2 of chapter 1 what was happening. We get a glimpse of it where we see that uh, Daniel writes, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, meaning Nebuchadnezzar, with some of the vessels out of the house of God. What does that mean? That means God caused this to happen. God allowed this to happen. God made this happen. In fact, you can go into other places in the Old Testament and read more detailed accounts of this happening. But the thing was, was that this was prophesied. It wasn't like God just got upset all of a sudden and did this. He didn't have an anger problem. He wasn't an ev- he's not an evil God. He, no one made him upset and so he just did this. He warned them over and over and over again. He sent his prophets to tell them, don't do this, repent, turn away from your sin and turn back to me. They had chance after chance after chance and they would not stop rebelling against God. In fact, Jeremiah told them God's warning. Look at Jeremiah 25, 4 through 9. If you'll turn there, we'll... We'll read that and listen to Jeremiah's uh, words to them from God. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear. Although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now every one of you from his evil way and evil deeds and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and to your fathers from old, of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them, or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Verse 7, Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to do your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. They were warned over and over again by God's prophets to turn from their rebellious sin against God, and yet they refused God's word. They refused to be faithful to God. And you know what they did in the next chapter in Jeremiah 26 after Jeremiah told them this? They were so angry and so hard-hearted, they decided they wanted to put Jeremiah to death. They wanted to kill him Because he told them God's words and called them to repent and turn back to God. These were the people of Israel and they they couldn't believe, they couldn't fathom Israel, Jerusalem being destroyed and them being taken captive to the degree that Jeremiah described. Jeremiah was eventually spared and was not put to death, but we see what happened. God allowed this to happen. He caused it to happen. Why? Because he was trying to bring them back to repentance. And then we see, after the captives have been taken back to Babylon, we see 
Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They find themselves taken from their homeland, prisoners of war, and forced into a foreign land that was completely different than their homeland in every single way. Different customs, different culture, different uh, beliefs, different language, different religion, everything, different foods, everything was different. And they were brought in, a part of the best and the brightest of Israel, because they were to be converted to become Babylonians. They were to become totally uh, immersed in their culture and beliefs so that these best and brightest could then go back to the Israelites and they could have a powerful influence and, and persuade them to leave their faith in God and follow the ways of Babylon. That was the goal that they were that Nebuchadnezzar was out to do. It was total indoctrination of these four Hebrew teenagers. So they would forget where they came from, forget their identity in God, forget who God was and come to serve and live for the God of Babylon. They were given new identities even. Now we're used to Daniel's name. That's his Hebrew name. But we call Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego by their Babylonian names and we're not used to their Hebrew names that they were given at birth. And names, as you know, were very important for them back in biblical times. Their name was their identity. It described who they were. Now look at, this is in order, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Look at their Hebrew name and then what it means. Hananiah, beloved by God. Uh, Mishael, who, who is as God. And Azariah, the Lord is my help. And then, of course, Daniel means God is my judge. And when we watch them throughout these first six chapters, we realize that's how they lived. They lived with this identity. They understood who God Almighty was. And they lived like that, like God is their judge, that there is no other. Who is there other than God? And, and, and uh, the Lord is my help and beloved by God. They lived like that. And that's an example for us today. So Nebuchadnezzar wanted to change totally and completely who they were, to pull them away from their faith in God and pull them to the faith of the Babylonian Empire so that they would be completely different people who would later pull Israelites away from God to be like the Babylonians. But what Nebuchadnezzar didn't understand was he couldn't pull them away from their God-given identities. He couldn't get them to change who they were. No matter what he threw at them, no matter what Nebuchadnezzar tried, he couldn't get them to break away from their courageous commitment to God. Now look at chapter 1, verse 8. Verse 8 is a key verse, if not the key verse, really, for at least the first chapter, if not all six chapters, the first six chapters of Daniel. Look at the first ver uh, verse 8 of Daniel 1. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him to not to defile himself. Now there's three important things that we see there that Daniel points out to us that we see in his commitment to God. The first is that Daniel resolved. 
Your translation may say that he made up his mind, that he, he determined in his heart. He, was com- he committed. He, he resolved this. He made up his mind, determined in his heart that he would not be defiled. In other words, no matter what Nebuchadnezzar threw at him, no matter what life threw at him, no matter what the circumstances were, he resolved. He made up his mind. He determined in his heart. He committed these things. See what that says to us about our faith? Look at the situation that he was in versus what we face in life. And we face some tough stuff, but nothing like what Daniel was facing in this moment. He didn't know what would happen to him. He didn't know if he would live or die every second of the day. He had no idea. And even in this initial commitment that he made, he knew that the king could kill him for making this commitment, this resolve that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. That's the second thing, that he wouldn't defile himself. That was his commitment. He wouldn't allow himself to be defiled or made impure or unclean by the foreign ungodly culture that he now lived in. Do you see? And and so we already know that the people of Israel weren't living right for God, and he lived in that culture. And he had the same commitment there among God's people that just because y'all live unfaithful to God doesn't mean I'm going to. I'm going to stay faithful to God no matter what God's people do. And then he finds himself in a totally ungodly culture, and he says the same thing. It doesn't matter where I am, what I'm facing, what's going on, what's around me, where I live in this world and what time it is, my commitment to God stays the same. You see, that's a universal truth. His commitment to God that he would not defile himself with the king's food or drink. That was his first commitment. His, the first time he made this commitment in this new setting. Now, we don't know exactly why he had an issue with the food or drink. We don't know if it, there was some cultural issue with the actual food or, or drink itself, but, it, it's, but it's likely that it really had to do with, I'm going to put a wall right here. I'm drawing a line right here, and I'm not going to accept the customs and the culture that you are pushing down my throat. I will not bow down. And if that means I'm not going to eat your food, then I'm not eating your food. It was a way to resist, a way to oppose them shoving their ungodly culture down his throat and changing his identity. He wasn't going to even give up when it came to what he ate. Does that make sense? It was one way he could stand in opposition and stand strong in his commitment to God. To show that there was a distinction. And see, God's people need a distinction in culture. We need to show that, look, there's a line and we don't cross that line. No matter what you say is normal, no matter what you say is right, no matter how you change from day to day, yesterday it was this, today it's that, that was wrong yesterday, today this is right. No matter what you say, the line is here and we don't change. No matter what culture says. Because we serve God Almighty. And we have a distinction here. Now, the third point we see is that Daniel writes, 
But Daniel resolved that he wouldn't defile himself. Do you see that? What's he saying? He's saying, no matter what anybody else does, even my buddies right here, even my closest friends, and of course he wanted them to have the same commitment, but he's saying, this is on me. I take responsibility for my life. No matter what happens, this is my commitment to God. I stand before God, and I choose that I will live this way. And so he's saying no matter what the people of God decide, no matter what happens in this culture, this foreign culture that I'm in, I make this commitment. I resolve for myself. See, there's times when you might have to stand all alone in your faith because everybody else is doing this, doing that, believing this, saying that, going there, and whatever it might be. Because the world says it's normal and okay, and many people who claim Christianity, who claim to follow Jesus, say it's no big deal, and they do that, believe that. They've changed their beliefs. They've shifted and changed. You've got to say that I take responsibility for myself between me and God. I will stay committed to God and live according to the life He would have me to live, even if I stand alone all by myself, I'll do it. That is courageous commitment. And that's what we see in the life of Daniel. So what happened when they stayed committed to God? And fortunately, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, maintained that same commitment as well. But he was willing to do it all by himself. In verse 9, we see that the chief of eunuchs allowed them to eat what they wanted to eat. They wanted to just eat vegetables and drink water. They didn't want to eat all the nice food of the royal family. And so God worked it out to where they were blessed to eat what they wanted. In verse 17, we see that God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And that comes to play in chapters 7 through 12 when God is doing what he's doing. But he was getting Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in position to do what he does in 7 through 12. And in, verse, in uh, verses 19 through 20, we see that when they were presented before King Nebuchadnezzar after this time period of pre preparation and study and all of that, that there was no one found to be like Daniel and his friends. They were head and shoulders above all the others in terms of being equipped and healthiness and, and capability and all of that. They were the best of the best. And they stood before Nebuchadnezzar and he saw that. Uh, in fact, the Bible says they were ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the kingdom because, see, that's the kind of stuff they believed in there in Babylon. And Daniel and his friends were by far better than that in all of their abilities. So God was raising up through the ranks Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego so that he could show himself truly as God Almighty. Eventually, as he put Daniel in position and as they went through the experiences that they went through so that God could send the message through the visions, the interpretations of the dreams in chapters 7 through 12 that there is one God and it is God Almighty, the God of Israel. And He is greater than all kings and kingdoms of the earth. In fact, He's sovereign over all of them and He will soon crush them all. 
and those who remain faithful to him, they will find that final and lasting kingdom. They will find a home there in that everlasting kingdom. That's what those last chapters are about. We even find in chapter 12 discussion about the resurrection. It's amazing what Daniel is about and its connection to Revelation. And in the end, both of them are making the point, God wins. No matter what happens in this world, no matter what happens in culture, God wins. God is God. And those who are faithful to Him are blessed to live eternally with Him. So what do we learn ourselves from this? What can we take away Well, three things I want to mention to you. We've got to be prepared for the challenges of a non-Christian culture. You've got to be prepared. If you call yourself a Christ follower, a child of God, you've got to be prepared to live in a non-Christian culture where, where, where left is right and up is down, right? And everything is twisted and broken. And what what you say is right, they say it's wrong. What they say is right, you say that's wrong. That's insane. You've got to be prepared to live in a non-Christian culture and stay faithful. And you've got to determine not to compromise your commitment to God no matter what culture you live in, no matter what setting you live in, no matter what culture says, no matter who says what, no matter what the the supervisor says, no matter what the school says, no matter what the boyfriend or girlfriend or the, the employer says, it doesn't matter. No matter what your family says, your best friend, it doesn't matter. You've got to keep your commitment to God no matter what. And finally, we see this in Daniel and his friends, Trust that God is faithful. And no matter what you might go through, and and no doubt Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach are going through some difficult times in these chapters. I mean, look at what they've already gone through at the beginning of the book. And yet their trust didn't waver, and they knew that God is faithful, even when I I can't make sense of what's going on around me. Even when I'm standing alone by myself in my faith. Trust that God is in control and faithful. So why have courageous commitment? Why why do this? Why have courageous commitment in God? Paul said it like this in 2 Timothy 1.12, For I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what he has entrusted into me. Paul said, no matter what, I know whom I've believed in. I know my Savior, and I trust Him. He is faithful to the end. It's because that Jesus lives we can face tomorrow, no matter what happens, because Jesus lives. And it's because Jesus lives we stay committed in our faith to Him. We stay committed in our devotion to Him. Because the tomb is empty, we remain faithful. Because Jesus lives, we live for Him. And it all is about Jesus. See, Daniel didn't know Jesus, but he knew God, the Father, because Jesus, the Messiah, hadn't been sent. But today we know we can know Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And because the tomb is empty, because we know He was raised from the dead by the power of God, that proves Him to be true and right. And I can put my trust in Him completely. 
No matter what goes on in the world and in my life, my hope can be solid and strong in him. And I can live with courageous commitment. Is that how you've been living? Have you made that commitment to live for Christ in the first place? Maybe you haven't and you need to put on Christ in baptism today. Maybe you need to start by studying with somebody. Maybe you need prayers because your things around you are a wreck and you need prayers to stay committed to Christ in your faith. If we can serve you this morning, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing.